Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and here I am with Matt Leach. Hello, Matt. Good day, sir. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? Yeah, really good. That's good. Really we're, good. We're here we are at the very last episode of this year's coverage of the design conference up in Brisbane. It is the last episode. Finally, we got there. We did it. I think this was recorded just before the after party, the infamous after party, which I think they had... Well, I know they had the presets at playing at this one. That's pretty cool. Is that the only reason it's infamous or is there something else I should know? Well, I'm getting to that age now where I tend to leave a little bit earlier. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Right. Home before the streetlights turn on. Yeah, I didn't actually know it was called this, but apparently it's called a smoke bomb. So that's where you you disappear. That's what the kids are calling it these days, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I'm showing my age, aren't I? (laughs) A little bit. Anyway, before we jump into this episode, I wanted to thank our major supporter, Streamtime. I wanted to give a specific shout out to the managing director, Andy Wright, our friend, Andy Wright. At the design conference, he was running back and forth, doing breakouts, doing emceeing, flying the flag for both Streamtime and Never Not Creative. He's a force of nature. And I just wanted to say how much we appreciate his guidance with ADR and the initiatives that he's starting in the industry. I'm actually getting involved in a new one that he's doing. It's all about internships. We're going to solve it once and for all or die trying. But I'll, uh, I'll update everyone on that as I know more. Also, while I'm hogging the microphone, I wanted to say thanks to all the volunteers that help at the design conference. There are too many to mention, but a massive thank you to the, all of them, particularly Jenny Fox and Tori Piercy. They are probably the two that I worked with most. And Jenny does all the, the screen stuff, like all the behind the scenes stuff. She's amazing. She keeps the whole stage on track. Anyway, again, it sounds like a pretty amazing year. So who did you manage to snare down for this episode, the last one? We have Kenjiro Crichton from Mahato from the UK. They've also got an office in Hong Kong. Their work is really community-driven. Well, not all their work, but a lot of what we talked about in this conversation was about the community-driven side of their practice. Oh, I love me some community stuff. Um, anyone that knows me, what you know, what is community-driven in this context? Yeah, it's a good question because it ranges. Some of the work... Like has people actually drawing marks that then they take and they make into large scale advertising. So you can literally see your two minute sketch displayed on billboards like all around London. Cool. Other work is smaller, but just more impactful, I guess, with the people they're working with. Uh, This community like is designing or co-design, I guess, with Hato. Uh, So they get an outcome they can all feel a part of, something that they can all own. Hato, I guess, in some respect is a facilitator of the design work which we get into quite a bit. This obviously brings up a whole bunch of obstacles and around ownership and fees and that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's super interesting chat. I'm also joined on this episode by Yasmin Nagavi, Senior Solicitor at Media Arts Lawyers, who also happens to be the sister of Alex Nagavi from Joseph Mark, which was on a previous episode. Also got Ben Johnson on, who's the CEO of Joseph Mark. It's all very interconnected. It was great to have Yasmin on because she asked a bunch of questions about legalities, things that I'd never have thought of. And then Ben, he was just awesome to have on, big fan of him, and a lot of similarities between what Joseph Mark does and what Hato does. Yeah, I think Yasmin spoke some years ago uh, at the Design Conference Prison. She was awesome. She did. And um, it's yeah. great. I really love this idea of having someone on as a guest and then, you know, in the next episode, they're, they're on helping us ask questions and, and digging in. <laughs> it's super, super cool. And yeah, this is a fantastic episode. It actually came from the fact that I was waiting for Kenjiro to finish a conversation that he was having with Ben. And I just thought, hell, I'll just, I'll just get Ben to come along as well. Look at you. Brilliant. <laughs> I love it. 
Yes. Oh, one thing to note, we begin the conversation where we left the last ADR episode actually with Ben and Alex. So talking about algorithms and sexual preference, it's a slightly strange place to start, but I thought I'd sneakily turn the microphone on because it was great to get Kenjiro and Yasmin's view on that topic. And I just love when it becomes a real conversation, so it's less interview, more discussion. So I hope everyone enjoys it. Dive right in. Talking about how we are going to hit a point where like an algorithm will help you decide whether we're a compatible partnership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or not. How do you feel about that? I think it's quite a scary initiative or a thought process. I think inevitably there's there's certain things that we as humans should be able to be able to make a call on and that that human instinct. And then there's some great topics and ideas for what the machine and machine learning and AI should be doing. Mutually, those should be the more mundane and automatic processes. I think the the relationship side is something that's so unexplainable. It's like the matching assault or something. Yeah, but I, I think the yeah. way you explain it is if if you're into a certain thing and and it, how how do you bring that up on the first date? Like, yeah, it, it's it's impossible to kind of bring. But if the algorithm has said like it was a good chance that they might be into <laughs> leather. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as in in bed. Yes. Oh. Well, and I, oh, I, I, I was I thought it was more, more conversational. Oh, oh, sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Sorry. I thought it was <laughs> <laughs> How I bring Sorry, up no, on this, this is more yeah, the, your <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is more uh yeah. Oh. How does the algorithm work that out? Sort of where does that data come from? Hmm. So Are you they're like collecting on Facebook? videos. No, no, no. <laughs> it's 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 all it's like it's, your, it's, your Google search. They're, 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 yeah. they're creating <laughs> this pattern. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> your incognito search. <laughs> yeah, well, I always think about that. If you've got like an Alexa or a Google Home, there's the the little switch that says uh, turn off the speaker, and that has to be when they actually start really listening, yeah. right? And it's, it's the same re- as re- in- re- incognito <laughs> mode. It's like okay, now let's look at what they're actually. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good. This is a good stuff. Yeah. Actually, the face recognition on the phone's freaking me out because I've never, I've always had the, you know, the paper over the camera on oh, yeah, yeah. the, the, the Mac, but now I've got the face recognition. I'm like wandering around the house, you know, yeah. after the shower, yeah. quickly check the mail. I'm actually quite concerned about that. I'm more concerned about that than Alexa overhearing what I'm saying. So what are you concerned about that? There's some... Well, I'm, I'm naked. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, so so and there's some perv on the other end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's not about your face being stolen and used for something. Actually, or... that's happened mm. recently, yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, I had a friend write to me on Facebook and said, uh, I think there's somebody catfishing me <laughs> as you. Jesus. Yes. So wow. Facebook were very quick to take it down, but it was a weird experience to see all of my photos on somebody else's profile. I think they called themselves Yasmin Nagari instead of Nagavi. And what, what was the intent of that person? At this point, not sure. And I'm not sure how many other people this Yasmin Nagari reached out to, but the, the page has been taken down. Times so. are tough in the, in the law game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, it's it. such a lucrative uh, profile. <laughs> to can, can you send some money <laughs> yeah. to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this checks out. This is Yasmin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 this is so, um, talking about photos on the internet, there was something mentioned in the Q and A about a certain photo that went out last night. Oh, the, the Instagram poll. 
which, yeah. which apparently was like the best looking speaker and, and you and you won. Uh, I think the with Instagram stories, you have 24 hours. So we still have another uh, six <laughs> hours to go to, to confirm and that. And you win sinks. Yeah. yeah. So I think it started out with, um, I was quite mutually happy to be on top at the beginning. Yeah. But then three or four hours later, sinks overtook me fivefold. You were so pretty gutted. Yeah, I, I know. saw your I face. Was, yeah. <laughs> it was shocking. He's, he's, but then what was, even, what was even more shocking was that Mills from us to still had only four votes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best. Are they, are they bots? Like, yeah, maybe actually. Because maybe there might be a, a trained point of uh, where Sinks is anyway. If I'm, for myself, I think it's... <laughs> all genuine. Yeah. All genuine yeah. votes. So you've, uh, you've just done... I haven't increased in followers, so maybe it is bots. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't actually work out. <laughs> you've just managed to do an hour-long talk, though, after being incredibly hungover. It was a journey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was an amazing talk though. I wanted to kind of jump straight into like your community driven practice. Yeah. Can you explain what that means and how the studio focuses on it? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think for us, it's something that we're always sort of defining ourselves. It's not necessarily um, a practice that is, that we can look to, to another studio or another uh, sort of like a legacy that, that, that there is. So we're always sort of defining how do we talk about that and how do we, also get people to understand what it is that we want to do. And I think we've been very fortunate in the sense that we've been working in, with cultural clients in the art sector and they, they really understand what we're, what we're looking at and how we're working. And I guess inevitably our, our initial projects were all within that sector. So, it, I mean, we're also a product of, of that moment in time and that products come from working with those clients at the Serpentine Galleries, the Whitechapel Gallery and so on. But I guess in, in the most simplest way of looking at it, it's really just by being community driven, it's not a, an us and them, it's a we, um, mm -hmm. and it's not a, a you and I, it's a, it's a collective. So it's really that sort of perspective of understanding that although we are designers, that's just our craft of communication. And whether we're working with a client or whether we're working with a community, it's about bringing them into that process and working on that together. So it's not us educating or trying to convince that this is the right way forward it's a journey that we take together you showed some really awesome examples of of how that's worked on a really small scale and i was instantly thinking well does it work on a big scale and then you showed some where it worked on on massive scale i mean i, I guess the the larger scale is probably like the more like where we're working online to an online community and then the smaller scale, I guess, here is, is maybe more where we're working with the local community and it's working at like a physical level and workshopping. And I think, I think both of those can be just as meaningful or just as large scale as each other. It just depends on the context of that space. I think at the moment, the sort of more analog or the, the workshop elements have been more community or local councils or local schools. But there's also initiative where if you take leaders in government or something and you're working with them, then, it, you know, it has like a, a bigger scale there. So I think the physical and the digital doesn't necessarily define the scale, but it kind of defines the journey where you can go with that person. So with an item like the DNAD project where it's online or yeah. we've done ones in the past where for other sort of practices, it's really understanding the, the UX or the user journey of the person who's participating. And within the design sector, if we're, if we're looking at working with bringing in creative community, it's for us to understand, okay, so the UX or the persona isn't, it's not a demographic of they're a designer, they're in their mid thirties, blah, blah, blah. It's actually, this is going to be used at a lunch break, coffee, or in the morning, it's probably going to have to be used on these platforms. 
and the entire journey needs to take X amount of minutes and it needs to be like fun throughout. So that's the sort of like the exchange that takes place that we need to sort of refine. And then I guess there is an element to the legal side of mm. if we're using their artwork, then or it is an artwork, how, where is it their artwork and where is it our artwork where we're building the tools to define that sort of parameter. And I think visually we, we understand there's certain amounts of tools that we have to do. So the tools that we design aren't necessarily a Microsoft paintbrush because that's quite a common thing. So we're always trying to bring in something that's, there's a bit of innovation. So in that sense that it is kind of this notion that, oh, okay, with this tool, I could do this with my practice. So what's really nice when we invite creatives for something like the DNAD one is that you can actually see their own journey of using it. So at first they might draw something quite flat and then they realize, oh, actually I can go into a three-dimensional space. Yeah. And then they draw into the three-dimensional space or, and then there's an, even a notion where, oh, I can draw an augmented reality. So in each of those instances, the flat one is probably the one that's closest to their practice, but we're actually really wanting them to go into the 3D space because that's the, the concept of that project. So as soon as we go into the 3D space, it starts to, there's a learning value exchange there. So the person is turning to think about, okay, if I draw in 3D, then if I'm drawing this face, I can actually start doing this or, and then there's, there, there becomes quite a nice um, dialogue between us, the facilitators and the person using the tool. So just touching back on the ownership question, how are you dealing with that, the, the logistics of that? Uh, before they're starting to use the software, are you asking them to sign a release or what, is it just when they enter the, the room or how are you working? It's a really good question because I've, I've heard of a lot of people who want to engage community more, but they, they get freaked out by the, the legalities of, of what they need to do and, and then end up just going an easier route. Yeah, I mean, on our end, it's quite a clear disclaimer and defining these, this is what anything that, you, that you're producing in this space will be, could be used for. Like Yasmin's face when it's being used to catfish. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, there was, there was no uh, implied or express license granted there. So or, you're asking or, or for a true a credit either. <laughs> yeah, no attribution. Uh, but you, you're, yeah. you're giving attribution. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, very important for us. And then, then so obviously just asking for a license. So there's no real assignment of Yeah, of and, it's, and it's, it's also not something that's, I mean, obviously with that project in particular, the, the, it's, a, it's a part of a marketing campaign to sell a ticket. So, but it's not selling, it itself is not a product. So I think in that sense, we feel comfortable in that space. I think if we were ever to have a client where what you're producing is then becoming a product, then we'd be very hesitant. So, I mean, there are like there are quite a few notable uh, sort of illustrators and artists in our, on our sector. And even just talking to them about that project, their instant thing is if, if there's a value exchange on their end that it's not valuable for them to submit something into this space because their work in that space, space of time has an actual uh, monetary value. So that was something that is quite also an interesting part of like, if you're wanting to get certain notable artists and illustrators involved in that sort of co-creation platform, then you have to think, I think you have to think beyond that in the sense that you then start to have to take into account. It's not just the person on their lunch hour, but it's the person on their lunch hour with this value for doing this thing. Yes. So I think it doesn't quite that, I guess that if you're drawing, if you're doing a drawing tool and you want famous people to use it, it's probably not the right output. Mm -hmm. You should do something else. And then it's actually of interest to that person because their value is, it changes of or course. their interest into it. Of course. Otherwise there needs to be some sort of 
consideration if you're just you know trying to get their endorsement yeah it uh, becomes more like a paid sponsorship or right. an influencer sort of yeah exactly negotiation do you find it easier to work with children than adults i think they're both like fantastic in the sense that children just there's this innate sense of creativity and just expression which is amazing and there's a huge element of the potential of what they can add to society or you know that, that notion of a sponge but I think with adults, for me, is, is something that I'm really interested in, in the sense that there's a challenge element and there's like this notion of reconnecting with creativity. Mm. I think that both they both need to be tackled at the same time. One is to nurture and the other is to inspire or to innovate. Right now, I think it, naturally we've done a lot of projects with children just because of that sort of the space that we're working in. Mm. I think moving forward, what we're really interested in doing is working with larger companies and looking at how we can transform internally but via just really simple notion of just reconnecting with likes of play and creativity to drive innovation and you spoke about the suppression <laughs> that happens through childhood yeah through your experience like I'm, I'm really curious when do you feel that happens when does the kid mm. and the playfulness is there a, get beaten is there out a of them yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean i mean for me i think i was super fortunate where I, I don't feel like that happened on my space in my space in my life why is that i think predominantly my mother is being an artist and my father being very supportive of her practice mm. so although she she um, looked after myself and my brothers but she also had space for her own studio and when i was really young i think i was fortunate that she would take me to her art studio and I'd just be get given like blocks of clay and stuff to do sculpture and I'd be quite happy just doing that. And then I would start designing like games. So I really wanted like a Nintendo, but I made like a cardboard version of it and <laughs> imagine what the game would do. And all of that was in a sense of encouragement. Yeah. Um, I remember recalled a period of time when I was really unhappy with what I would start drawing and I would get very like angry I'd tear it up, I'd burn it. My mom would be like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. It, and there was a certain notion where I was being overly critical. And maybe that's coming from external mm. points of view, like education, but she was being the one that's saying it doesn't matter. It's just, it's a part of Process. what you're learning. Yeah. 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 I think that's the biggest problem I've seen. My kids will do some work and I'm like, that is awesome. And then like a week later, they're not doing that work anymore and they're mm. doing a quite different. I'm like, why, what, what happened to that stuff? Yeah, and yeah. They were like, oh, the teacher at school said, um, cool. And it's just, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And sad. then it's really hard to kind of like have that conversation about like, well, that's their opinion. Yeah. What's your opinion? Mm -hmm. And that kind of, but they're so kind of, they're looking for approval, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it was only in my later life and the reflection that is now obvious, but I had both of my parents were artists yeah. growing up and it stands to reason like that it frames you but in in such interesting ways and I, the the biggest one for me is the only uh rule my dad would ever tell me was like do what you want don't hurt anybody like that was it. yeah and such great advice and mm. and so like my risk profile is crazy <laughs> <laughs> maybe not such great advice after all <laughs> sounds good on paper and and, and but, but also my comfort around like money and and, mm -hmm. and sometimes the lack of money was due to my my, my parents just doing incredible things yeah being successful, but not having sometimes not having 
money in the bank. Yeah. And that was cool. That was fine. We still, you can still be creative. Yeah. So do you oh. think part of the problem, throwing to both of you, is that more people are placing value on money and materialistic objects as opposed to having fun and experiences? Yeah, I mean, very much so. I think uh, right now, I guess, we still have things like the Forbes rich list and so forth. And even things like, I, I mean, there's been a lot of talk in this conference about Instagram as having an effect. And I think money and Instagram, they're, they're very similar notions of, you know, in, in Instagram, it's about, I mean, it should be about self-expression and finding your own voice, but people go to museums and galleries, not to look at the artwork, but to show how intelligent they are that they're standing next right. to a Yayoi yeah. And it's not, uh, it's not really the, the, the core message of that, of that space. And similarly with, I mean, Botox has been a big talk about the Instagram side. And that, that's, I think both of those notions and money are quite, are quite similar. Oh, that's a whole can of worms. Um, <laughs> so, so just to circle back, just in, in terms of the, the, the kids in that play, like we saw the biannual piece yeah, and, the, yeah, and, the, yeah. and the buses, which was just so beautiful. And we were talking just before we uh, came in around the, the, the collaborative process that you took the kids on. Can you yeah. just expand on that a little bit? I mean, a lot of that, I think, is really creating an informed experiences and, or informed people, participants. So, I mean, it's taking the children and working with them and, you know, little things like look, exploring Thomas More's utopian publication, why it was written, why oh, wow. the sort of the Voyager discs were important or the sort of the, the pioneer plaque and this idea of a, a language in the future or someone not understanding what you're, awesome. you're saying. And did you take, so you, so they sort of had this immersion and, and education around that and yeah. then yeah, you yeah, took yeah. them into the, the creative. There was a, beautiful video of a, of a little boy at the end kind of talking about what the concept was. Yeah. And I was like, wow, he's like, he's actually, he's learned it and understood it. Yeah. Which was really exciting. Yeah. And there's no, there's no notion of, oh, I was told this. It's yeah. very much so that they, they, they really have learned it and absorbed it. Yeah. So that sort of project we, we do like over like a week or three, three, four days. And then we come up with lesson plans. But a lot of this work, that sort of notion of it is that we're actually working with a client prior to that. And we're defining the tools and we're sort of understanding what the possibility of that final outcome could look like and exploring that. And then we sort of retrofit it. So we start designing backwards and thinking, so if we need to get to a design that's something similar to this notion, what lessons do we need to learn? What do we need to understand to be able to add value to that project yeah. and take it to like a totally new direction? So that's where I guess those things like the Rosetta Stone, the Thomas More's Utopia and so on kind of really help inform the the students sort of input into that and then after that it sort of becomes their own their own sort of interpretation their own artwork their own piece i've got loads of questions um about that but your inspiration for some of that is that from i've completely forgotten the name the, the newsletter school uh soliston frenet yeah he's a huge sort of inspiration of what's I guess so, so Frenet, to, to put that in context, he had a, I guess a letterpress press and he taught his um, school via a distribution of a newsletter. And I guess for us, we learned about him on quite an early stage of our, our practice. And at that stage, we were really questioning what, because as part of our practice, we bought a printing press and we set up a, a press as a support structure. And I guess at that starting point, we're really questioning what a support structure or what a printing press has relevance in today's society. So I think that notion of Frenet and what he, he took that press as a tool and how he could use a tool to sort of deliver a whole educational system around it. 
And I mean, right now, even that sort of notion is quite popular in childhood education where you have forest schools. Yeah. It's a similar notion where you, you, it's about exploration. It's not necessarily about discovering something. It can be about exploration. It kind of goes down to other sort of points of how much uh, accessibility we're able to give to children and, mm. and to adults as well. That, that notion of even when we put it to an adult uh, into our like, business perspective, that notion of being a designer and knowing the best isn't necessarily correct. And it's probably the same with any other practice, whether you're a lawyer or a doctor, mm. and that you need to listen to the wider audience and bring them into that process. Is it a hard sell because you don't, you don't really, you're kind of getting the client to sign off before they really know when you know what you're going to get? Yeah, very much so. And I think that um, it, a lot of that comes down to trust. Um, the trust in the client for us to to be able to deliver something with with the community at an, in, an integrity level. So in that talk, we sort of mentioned the sort of Tokyo Olympics as a reference and other sort of a- areas where it's this open call to design a logo and so on. And it's really just reassurance that the process isn't a point where we're using the creative integrity of someone and just creating a platform where we don't do any work and and there, there you go, you have you have your your project to the client. That there isn't, I guess, inevitably that there isn't a, a bad press around that sort of project. But then I guess it's the the trust that we will be able to deliver that project in the space. But I think what's also really lovely in that notion is that when they when that trust is there, how strong the relationship between a designer and client, if we call that as like a hierarchy, can be. It, that's that as soon as that trust is kind of signed off, it's not. Of course, there is uh, inevitably there is a client aspect to it because they're the ones that are paying a monetary value for the service. But it's a commitment to the beginning of a journey or the beginning of a process. And I think that's something that we really take for granted in our practice in the sense that we're we're working so collaboratively with clients that we don't often find ourselves in the situations where we're designing hundreds of options or lots of options. It's kind of more it's a journey and we're, we're, we're really sort of discovering or exploring a route and that kind of takes us through there. So would that stop you from maybe you've had the situation where you, the result you got back was not was not going to fit for the client? Yeah, I think that I mean, it's happened before, but I think that's more in the less of just a brief not being quite quite right. Right. Um, and like a time scale or the importance of that element of the project. But otherwise, I don't think it's I mean, because there's certain pre- cautions and we call it precautions but it's more design decisions yeah. so it's understanding how something would be used understanding what the value exchange is and really defining the parameters of the tool yeah and defining it to a sense where when you use it you're still the artist mm-hmm. but when you use it it's still relevant to that final output that you're wanting to reach yeah you talked about creatives loving constraints yeah. In, in some way, because they, they know the box that they can play in. Yeah, which is something I, I have strongly and heavily believe in. And it, I think for us, it also comes from our own experience from doing letterpress printing when we're still at university. And it's just this lovely idea where you don't have all the letters in a certain type size. So you have to work it out around that. Yeah. Um, and then all the sort of opportunities that come from there. It's quite a, a lovely notion. In, in the presentation, I, I noticed that you seem to have a, a strong connection to food. Yeah. Is that, is, is that true? Like, 100%. What, where's, where's... Were you hungry? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm, I'm obsessed with food. So any yeah. time I can talk about food, please tell me more about your interest in food and your connection to food. 
I mean, again, that actually started whilst we're, oh, I mean, it didn't start when we were in university. It's very much a cultural and family family thing. But I guess that connection of food and design started, the overlap of what it was started in university. And it was really, it was actually the first project that, or the last project that we did between myself and business partner Jackson, who co-founded Hato with me. Um, and we were really exploring how food could be a social sculpture or as well as a social catalyst. So we designed uh, four evenings of dinner, um, invited five different practitioners. And it's really important that those five practitioners came from a really mixed array of fields. So we had architects, neuroscientists, poets, um, writers, games designers who had come to a student's flat. It wasn't a student's flat. We actually borrowed my mom and dad's living room. <laughs> but the fact that they, they literally got this letter pressed invite sent to them in the post. Oh, I love it. Can um, I steal this idea? Yeah, yeah. totally. I'm totally going to do this. Signed, signed off by this, these three kids that were calling themselves Lemon and Herb. <laughs> that was just uh, based on Nando's, um, Nando's. Oh, yeah, the, the, the mild recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and then they came and they they came to dinner in this strange space. And they all came with a very different intent. We had a neuroscientist that was more about sound. So he was actually just interested in how we dealt with acoustics in the space. And we were like, we haven't even thought about that. Um, <laughs> but I think what was important there was... Um, it was really about the, creating that platform and inviting those people. And the sort of final output to that project, we deconstructed the table, we made it into a park bench, and that was a, a permanent space that could always have a, be able to facilitate an interaction without us being there. And then we wrote a reality fiction novel. We were, for whatever reason, we were really into reality fiction at that time. <laughs> I think the Breakfast of Champions book was quite an inspiration. So it was just a story of the three of us going from university tutorials to building this table to then having this dinner. And it doesn't really talk that much about what was discussed. I think we realized that when we first started, the intent was, oh, we're going to publish these evenings of dinner and that would be the conversation. It would be like a new way of doing a talk or a lecture. But I think for us, it was actually, oh, okay, that, that, I mean, that is really interesting. But then we kind of felt like we were using that those people who came for that reason. And that wasn't necessarily what our invitation was about. Mm. It was really about that, that sort of social sculpture. So I think that was our first realization that food and design are much the same. It's just about, it's just another way of communication and that food is just as much as a craft as typography and, and typesetting. And then whilst we're, before we started the, the design studio, I had to stint as um, interning in various spaces. I think on my end anyway, it was just the, the time that I hated the most was lunchtime in that sense. It wasn't that there was a hierarchy between um, interns and designers and so forth. It was just, I just saw, witnessed the culture of people going to, in the UK we have Tesco, so it's like, I guess like a 7-Eleven mm. sort of thing, going there and buying like some shitty sandwich and then eating it in front of their computer. Yep. So losing the social element of yeah, together. Yeah, and, and I think that's... It's much like when we talk about play or being social, it's all about, and we talk about well-being. I mean, well-being is such a, a topic and I actually haven't read anyone or even myself comment about food and lunchtime being such an important part to the studio practices working day. And that was actually our, my, and our first sort of publishing project. It was called Studio Cookbook. It was, we see it as a platform, which we'll probably reintegrate soon. But it was just a, it's just a book where it has uh, recipes that are submitted from artists and designers. And it was just this notion to encourage people to socialize at lunchtime. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that that is really important even more now. I've only just realized that now in the sense of when we're talking about well-being or um, last night there was a sort of a breakout talk on mental uh, health and, yeah. and burnout. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just the, the whole point of the, the communal lunch is to be able to have a shared space where we can put down our tools of what we do at work and to talk about whatever. And it's also fine to talk about work as well, but it's just a different context. Yes. So in our practice, we have, I don't know if you have it in Australia, but we have um, a weekly veg drop. So it's like a local farm, yep. Yep. organic veg that drops in. And then we have like a rota. So one of us will cook for the team uh, for the day, or for the day for the lunchtime. And, uh, and then that's just like a moment of time of food. So is that one day a week? Uh, so one person will do, one, one well, person. I guess there's like 10 or 12 of us. So I guess one person does once every two weeks. I love that. How do you enforce that though? Do you, do you know like Barry is just not like Tuesday, yeah, the, the every cooking. second Tuesday when oh, Barry God. does it. Like, I, don't want, I, don't I always feel guilty because I mean, on my, on my end, I'm out the most. So, but, <laughs> I, but I love the cooking bit. So. <laughs> When I am able to cook for the team, I'm like super like excited and to have the time to cook is just, I think there's also the, the notion of you're preparing something for your peers. Yeah. And that's, that's also quite like a, a poetic idea of being in the workplace and you're making something that's nourishing or will be enjoyed by the people that you work with Yeah, as well as shared collectively. We have people come to our house on Fridays and we have gin Fridays. And my husband, who is one of the partners at the law firm, makes cocktails for everyone. Brilliant. He makes a killer fucking Negroni. Like, <laughs> the best. <laughs> yeah. We, 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 do, we do Monday morning breakfasts nice. that, that, that rotate. Yeah, it's, it's awesome, especially across the spectrum of the different crafts. Like Dev, not to put people in boxes, but Dev breakfasts are uh, something else. Cereal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> do you, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in like, do, do you put a time limit around how long they're allowed? I mean, is, is, are people choosing like really intensive kind of like six hour kind of, I, I'm not going to At our that. office it would be. We're <laughs> all total foodies. It's right. ridiculous. I think, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, I think if we had a different studio space, that would probably be, we'd probably have to think about that. Right. But in our practice, shockingly, We've been doing this since we started, but all we have is a rice cooker, and that's that's our <laughs> that's our cooking right. utensil. And the 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 meals are getting better and better. Constraints, but those yeah. constraints, yeah. <laughs> so we do amazing pastas. Um, while you're boiling, you can steam your veg. Like there's like quite a capacity that you're able to reach with that. I think one of the next books, cooking books, will be probably focused around what you can do with a rice cooker. Um, oh, and it might I love be those it. dishes. I want to do one on uh, all the things that you can make with a sandwich toaster. Ah, uh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> swaps you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we should collaborate. <laughs> Is this something you've transferred to Hong Kong as well? Hong Kong side, it's a bit more difficult just because of the, um, the context and the studio space as well. And also, I mean, where we are, we're so fortunate in Hong Kong where we have like a Michelin level dim sum, three doors down. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Yeah, but if you did breakfast, lunch, dinner in this space, you'd spend like five pounds for a group of three of you for the entire day. Yeah. Yeah. It's so affordable I and know. it's just amazing. And like, it's delicious. Yeah. I love Hong Kong. And it's, and, but it's also such a community space as well. So the breakfast is just, you see all the elderly in the local area and, and they, don't, they don't have a lot of money to spend, but it's not a huge cost. Their breakfast is like one pound 50 and mm. And it's, a, it's an amazing Incredible. array. So, I, haven't, I haven't been to any houses or apartments in Hong Kong, but I imagine it's similar in, uh, in 
Tokyo where the kitchen space is quite small. So is that yeah, 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 very much so. So that's also part of the drive to eat out. And yeah, it, right? I think so. And I mean, Hong Kong and in, in, in food and restaurants is it always fascinates me. Even these in all these sort of dim sum and uh, and all like the breakfast and lunch spaces. Hong Kong, like the, the space, is such an issue in the sense that they don't have a dishwasher in their actual sm- the small restaurants. There's a company that picks up all oh, the dishes, so it all goes into boxes, and they all get picked up, and then they get boxes delivered. So it's actually, and apparently, it's actually more environmentally sustainable for this to happen because all those dishes are all the same in every restaurant and they go into an industrial dishwasher. So it's only one dish cycle that actually covers a huge number of restaurants. So, I I mean, like even that is just a notion of, I guess, space in the kitchen, Mm. but the the way that they tackle that problem is really interesting. Yeah, it is. Can I pick up on the sustainability idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because obviously with your press, you've, you've gone to great lengths to make them as sustainable as possible. Yeah. How do you keep on top of all that? Because it feels like there's new products coming out all the time. Some of them are like charlatans in the sense that it wasn't what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. But is that like a kind of, does that feel like a full-time job just kind of keeping on top? Within our practice, and I guess we, we graduated from St. Martin's in a graphic design course. We didn't do a business course and we don't know how to run a business. We've been learning it. And I think that's that's a really strong thing in that sense, in the in the idea that we don't, think that we're experts in running a business. And that also forces us to reevaluate and evaluate what we do every year and consider, are we making the right choices? Like what should we be doing and so on. And I think as the practice, I mean, we're very fortunate that it grew a lot in the past three, four years in terms of not, not necessarily in terms of numbers. For us, growth is more about the impact that we're having, that who we're reaching in a wider community and whether that means getting larger clients or having larger projects. And it doesn't necessarily mean growing in numbers, but that has meant that certain things like if we take the stationary range as an example, where we weren't evaluating what does the stationary range really communicate. So really thinking about everything that is in our practice as a touch point of our values. Right. So as part of sort of last year's sort of evaluation, it was looking, how does our studio space, how is that a touch point of our values? So little things like, so in the upstairs space, we sanded all the floors, we bought in um, slippers that were really nice. And then so everyone in the meeting space that comes in, it's quite like a, a Japanese space where you take your shoes off and you have and you wear slippers. And that's that's how we all work. Um, and that's how clients will come in and have a meeting with us when we, after they sort of see the printing press. And Fantastic. so it's kind of really looking at all those little touch points. And that's something that's a huge task. And it's very much the same as how brands and big companies look at transformation but it's looking at also the micro details of how we can transform our culture internally, um, as well as, as a way to sort of bring in the right people externally when we want to hire. But I guess uh, this, is, uh, this new range is like the fifth prototype. And the last range, we're really, really like proud of ourselves. We're patting ourselves on the back that we got this contract deal and like 10 or 20,000 units were gonna get distributed around the world. And it was like a huge achievement but nothing felt quite right. And in reality, we were like, in the past, our, st- our stationery was using upcycled products. So it was off prints from the printing press, but because of, I guess in this instance, because of law legislations, and if it's an off print from a job, and then that gets into a commercial product that's distributed worldwide, mm-hmm. 
that to someone's artwork potentially. Right. So to get around that, we we're like, okay, so we'll off print, we'll print our own off prints. So then we started printing our own off prints, which was meaning that we're printing for the sake of printing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we were laminating covers because the covers had to be laminated because it would have to go into this big store and they couldn't have non-laminated covers. Um. And then we had to vacuum pack the covers because they would get damaged. Wow. So that's plastic. So all these things just, just bit by bit, they're just being added to the, against yeah. the original intention. So now we've released this new range and it's really, again, this sort of, right, if these are our values, what's not working for us or what is it, what is going really against that grain? And the stationary range is one of them and it was sort of our launch to go alongside sort of to, to sort of campaign for Earth Day as well. But it's one that we're super proud of and it's all the binding is done through paper folds and paper itself. So the product can be um, recycled as one object. And the papers from post-consumer paper, the covers are recycled from um, used coffee cups. But they also have a part of virgin paper in there as well. And that's just more to keep the quality and the color through there. And so how does that affect the price? Yeah, I mean, the, the price is quite high, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I, need to, I probably need to double check. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but they're, not, they're not super high. I mean, like you get stationery that's the same price. Okay. In the past, like I, I guess it was like... I mean, pricing is such a huge thing in in our industry, mm -hmm. um, especially when we're talking about sustainability and craft. Yeah, we used to have this mentality of we have a lot of Japanese values, and in Japan, there's a lot of the best quality at the cheapest price. Mm -hmm. So that's what we went. We we sort of sustained our practice, risograph printing around that. So the best service, and it would be the most affordable price. But in turn, that's actually created a monopoly essentially which is not a very positive sort of community that we're creating at all mm. so moving forward as a printing press and a publishing house or maybe sorry more as a printing press it's more like saying that so in our term of 10 years of set, setting up this printing press where it's a it's not been a commercial printing press this risograph printing technique before we've seen all the competitors that we started with shut down and we yeah. see on an annual basis new printing presses opening and new and those same printing presses over a period of time closing and it's really to say okay so why is that and, and inevitably it's probably that notion of we keep our prices low and we keep everything at the we at the quality high then it doesn't create a market space mm -hmm. and then it doesn't and if we don't create a market space and we can't print for everyone then people won't be, there won't be more people printing sustainably. So on our end, what we've done is that, although we have increased prices, but we've able to reinvest that into programs like the copy shops and the Hatter Student Society, right. where we're able to give cause to actions and um, activists that we really believe in uh, at, at a free of charge. And we're able to support the young sort of uh, creative industries and at the moment, we support them with printing that's almost like 50% discounted. Wow. Um, free portfolio reviews, free workshops. Oh, I love that. The, the portfolio reviews. Yeah, it's so super needed. important. <laughs> yeah. And I think as, as we grow, we'll want to be able to do more in that. So although we've had to slightly increase those prices, we've ensured that it's a, it's, that investment goes back into what we really stand for and, and nurturing that. And then I think what we want to do then is also nurture other printing presses to set up and be a sustainable practice right. rather than finding themselves with a, a dream or a vision to running, a, uh, running this business and then realizing that it's, it doesn't quite equate. 
but I think we've got a long way to go there. You speak, obviously, like it's it's a values underpin organization, everything. Do you, I'm curious, do you have set values? So I guess what's interesting on that side, we definitely have set values yeah. and, but we, were, we never wrote a manifesto. That's like a, an idea of how uh, we, we would understand from studying design. Uh, you, you look at art movements and they write a manifesto and that's the 10 things that they do. We didn't do that. And Jax and I share values and that's why we started working together. And, that's, and I think that's the most important part. Within our values, we had references that we were really inspired by and that's how we connected. So these were the references that we shared and they're the references that stay with us as, as, a, corp, as a corporation, a company. And those are the sort of things that we sort of relooked at last year. It's like, are those, are those values or are those references still important? And they, they range from, so News From Nowhere as a, as a publication that talked about a utopian society during the arts and crafts movement, written by William Morris. From that, we look at the idea of what society could be. So that not everything is done by an exchange of monetary value. It's done by understanding the value of something. So that's where... I guess that helps us inform that value exchange and co-creation. The designers like Bruno Monari is someone who looks at play and, and working with children is, and designing tools and forms and games to sort of inspire creativity, as well as Celestin Frenet, who we talked about. And then Japanese culture as a culture that embraces the community and one that embraces craft, but craft in a wider sense. No, so not necessarily... I guess looking at a wallet right now, like leather craft or I don't know, like stone carving, but craft is uh, craft is like a more everyday or design and so on. That it's an approach. Yeah, so it's it's found everywhere. Yeah. So I think collectively, I'm sure I've missed out one other, but I think collectively those references all have a value, and that's that's our sort of value system. Beautiful. One of the comments you made on on stage, and we're coming towards the end, but I was really keen to know you you were like absolutely no pitching. Yeah, I mean, we do, I guess that probably came across wrong. I mean, we do get asked for pitch and we do pitch. Mm. We don't pitch for free. Right. And we don't pitch, I mean, the most important part, I guess, and maybe a dismay to some, some like opportunities, but we don't pitch visualizations is probably the best way to put it. We'll say this is how we work and this is what we would like to do with you. And that's quite a detailed process. But we won't start putting out... These are your different options that we would do for you, or this is an option. It's very much so, this is the journey that we're going to go along. Yep. And this is how we're going to do it. And this is the work that we've done. A lot of clients, there's this sort of element of, it's almost like try before you buy. They want to see what it is, what exactly it is uh, before they purchase that. And, you know, I guess like last year, um, we had conversations with quite a big client and it was just that part the try before you buy that they really wanted to see. Mm. And we, we stuck to our own sort of roots and said, no, this is, it's just not the way that we work. We put the, the fee and the pitching into a different part of that project, which we felt would add value to them no matter who they went with, um, which is more sort of like the strategy and interviewing side. Well, I think we still stand by that and still really believe in that. And I guess that's also down to the value of what value we have. And setting up the relationship with a client under the right sort of pretense. So it's not, we're not a production company. So you can't, you don't come to us and ask for five different versions and that's, and we're going to instantly give that over. Yeah. It's really understanding that it's a collaboration. It's not, um, 
uh, the, the opposite of a collaboration. Work for hire. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long night yeah. last night. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings us to the end, and, and that was amazing. Thank you. Where can people find out more? And I just wanted to, um, with the Student Society, Yeah. can people, students in Australia? Yeah, 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 definitely. You said you'll look at um, online portfolios yeah. as well. Yeah, so I think, I mean, we haven't done that before, but obviously being here, and there's no reason not to look at online portfolios. So the Student Society website, is a it's going to crash after all, no. all Australian. <laughs> I, think it's I, think, a, I think the link needs to be. Yeah, yes. we'll add that link. And then the other stuff from the studio is uh, hato.co. Yeah. Um, but the Student Society site is it's definitely an international thing. And we want to be able to grow that and expand that. And, and I think also there's this other notion that we also have a responsibility to facilitate people who have just graduated. Because there are a lot of positions where, especially when I graduated at the, at the recession time, a lot of my friends were in internships for like three or four years before they actually found a full-time job. Or paid internships? Not even paid, no, a lot of those. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. But this was, this was, uh, <laughs> it is illegal. Ten, ten, <laughs> over 10 years ago now. But I guess oh, that's a, that, it's that notion that once you start studying, you're not sorted. Mm. There are, there, you still need a support structure there. Totally. Universities don't offer it. Some businesses don't offer it right. if they're not doing, if they're not hiring you or bringing you in responsibly. So there is this element of with something like that student society. What can we then offer once you've graduated? So that's something we haven't quite cracked, but it only launched a couple of months ago. So we've still got time. Awesome. Ben, where can people find out about you? Joseph Mark, who is Joseph Mark on Twitter and Instagram, and then Ben Johnston on Instagram. Yasmin, where can people find out about you? MediaArtsLawyers.com. You can read my profile on the website. I'm not very good on Instagram, but I'm on there. Yasmin Lagavi. <laughs> <laughs> the real one. I, I, I'm really shit at it. Like, really, I never post. I follow and stalk everyone else, but, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.